Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Our scripture this morning comes from 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. If you're able, please join me in standing for the reading of God's word. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, friends. You know, one of the uh, areas that I am very interested in both academically and personally is how our brains and our minds work, especially as they relate to language and learning. And I'm also very interested in counseling and emotional and psychological health. Now, obviously, I'm not an expert in any of those areas, but I do enjoy learning uh, in, about these areas, not only to be a better professor and a better pastor, but also just for my own mental and spiritual health, because life is hard. Conflicts happen, our emotions are very powerful. They make us do dumb things often. We get stuck in patterns of thought and we get wounded in ways that actually make it really hard to show up differently. And one of the books I've been reading recently uh, is by a Christian psychiatrist named Kurt Thompson, and it's his book called The Soul of Desire. And he talks about what trauma and wounds do to our brains, that, that pain and grief and trauma actually make us get stuck in certain neural pathways that go deep into our psyches. And one of the ways that you can tell that this has happened and happens in your life is when you have an emotional reaction that is much, much larger than the situation that that caused it. In other words, when you have these situations, I'm sure you've seen this in yourself at points where something small happens and you're just flooded with emotions and your reaction to it is, is much, much larger. What this shows, these kind of imbalanced reactions that we all have at points, show us that there's a lack of, of integration of the parts of our mind and our brain and our soul. It's a lack of wholeness that happens from wounds. And it's true to all of us to some extent and for many people a lot. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about this, but I just bring this up because one of the things that that Thompson's book points out that I found very helpful and very interesting was that he said that for us to go from those kind of imbalanced, um, triggered, reactive states that we all find ourselves in sometimes to becoming more whole people, one of the keys to that is we we need to learn to process our grief. We need to face honestly and squarely our problems and our stories and our wounds and our sins. And when we do this, 
slowly but surely over time, we can experience a, a, a greater wholeness, a reintegration of the parts of our, of our brains and our minds to a place of greater wholeness. And that really, the ability to do that is the gift of God's spirit to us as embodied creatures. Now I begin this way today because as we continue our preaching through 2 Corinthians, our text for today focuses very squarely on the reality of grief and pain in our lives, especially the kind of pain and grief that comes from other people, from people hurting one another. And you know, as I continue to study the Bible some 35 years or so in now, I'm always amazed at how real and personal and honest it is. I mean, you'd think the sort of most influential, most famous religious book of all human history would be full of just like abstract ideas and everybody's perfect and kind of mythical stories. It's not. It's full of very real people in real situations and a lot of mess. And what we meet there, what we meet in the Bible are people that are, that, that are really dealing with real issues in their lives, people who are both made in the image of God and those who are broken and need God's help. And if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know, we have been preaching through this letter that we call 2 Corinthians, and it's by the Apostle Paul written to this little church in the Greek city of Corinth. And it really is one of the most personal and vulnerable parts of the Bible with plenty of examples of people doing dumb stuff, people hurting one another, and people finding new life in Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit. And today's text is no exception to that. In fact, we're gonna be looking at a few more verses other than what I had Lindsay read. We're gonna be looking at the end of chapter one. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. We'll put them on the screen. The end of chapter one into the first 11 verses of chapter two. And what I'm gonna do today is just briefly explain some of the things that Paul's saying, kind of put it in, in, in his own situation. And then I'm just gonna make five observations about what we can learn from this and understand what God is saying. But before we do that, before we open the text, I wanna pray once more just that God would attend to us and ask him to be present. So bow your heads with me, I'll pray. Our Father, I thank you for many of the words we've just sung and heard, especially struck by the truth that all of our losses and pains you turn for our good. Thank you for that. I pray that you would now attend to us, fill me with your breath and all of our hearts be opened by the power of the Spirit so that we might taste and see your goodness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So last week, I gave some historical kind of information about this letter, this very personal letter, Paul's relationship to this young church in Corinth. If you weren't here, no problem. Let me just do a, the briefest review to make sense of what's going on in the verses we're about to look at. So the Apostle Paul, this really important early Christian leader, uh, he had lived in Corinth for a little while. He'd um, planted this church there, made disciples, built relationships, had friendships with these people. He loved these people. He moved on to a couple other cities and was traveling around. And later on, some stuff happened and the relationship got pretty messed up. And some people back in that church in Corinth decided they didn't like Paul and his teachings. And at one point, the church turned against him and resulted in him visiting there and being completely discredited and leaving in humiliation. And, and these relationships are broken. And so through a lot of prayer and anguish, 
and writing of several letters back and forth uh, to them. You know, he was really trying to shore up these relationships and fix this. Well, back in the letter we call 1 Corinthians, back near the end of it in chapter 16, Paul tells them that he was planning on making a visit to them and he was gonna pass through the Greek area of Macedonia, but he had to later change his plans. And so he was gonna visit them on the way back and on the way there. But when he visited them on the way there, that's when this huge conflict happened. And he, and he left Corinth, again, with, with these broken relationships and this huge humiliation. So instead of visiting them on the second way back, he decided to write this letter to them that, was, that we don't have anymore, that was very strongly worded and left some kind of questions hanging over their relationship. And some of the people there in Corinth then were using this to accuse him of being fickle. This is what we talked about last week. They were probably suspicious of him also that he was collecting money, which he was legitimately to help the poor Christians in Jerusalem. So they probably were starting to cast doubts in their minds about that and also about some of his teaching, et cetera. As I said last week, you know, when you get a bad attitude towards somebody, then everything they do looks suspicious. And this is what happened. So this is what he's referring to at the end of chapter one. If you look with me in verses 23 through 2-4, he says, I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I've grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Okay, so this is very personal and he's dealing with these issues with them. And now apparently what happened was that the tide had turned. There had been some guy who had been really kind of leading this opposition to Paul and who'd stood up and probably been involved in Paul getting humiliated on his last visit. But now the tide has turned and this man, the church has kind of rebuked or reproved that guy and called him to repentance and he, and he has. He repented. He, this guy who had been opposed to Paul has now you know, said he was wrong and he's willing to reconcile this relationship, it seems. And so now... Paul is concerned that maybe the church that is now siding with him has taken their correction of this guy too far. Now, if you think with me, imagine if you were in a situation where you were greatly humiliated and this group of people was opposed to you and then they turn and start to side with you and are opposed to the other guy, how would you respond? Well, I'd probably be doing a victory dance, right? And I'd probably want some vengeance. I'd want some justice. Might put some Christian garb on it, but I'd, what I'd really want is justice for myself, right? Well, Paul had won, but he doesn't want this man to be damaged and he doesn't want to cause further damage to the church. So he exhorts them to instead forgive the guy. Look at what he says in verse five. He says, if anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as really grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I've forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. <laughs> this is amazing. 
So this very real life situation, this messy situation between Christians, Paul is now writing to clarify how do you move forward graciously and with grace and love and kindness? Okay, so what are we supposed to understand from this for our real lives? Well, like I said, I wanna give you just five observations. Don't worry, this is not a three-hour sermon. Five observations that I'll move through quickly here. Spend a little bit more time on the second one. But as I reflected on this text and how this fits in the Bible, let me make these five observations. Here's the first one. Our lives are marked by grief and pain from others. Now you may say, well, that's obvious, but let's think about this for a minute. We are broken people living in a broken world and there are lots of reasons and lots of causes of pain and grief in our life. There are physical problems we have. There are financial problems we have. There's loss that comes to us through death and disaster. There are disappointments from things breaking and not working out as we'd hoped. New shiny things lose their luster. All those are causes of grief and pain. But I think the deepest and longest lasting pains and griefs we experience as humans are those that come from other people especially those we're closest with. If you and I were sitting down for coffee and we were talking and I began to ask questions about your life and you know what's going on and what things have gone on in your life so far, after we got through the superficial things, you, know, you might tell me about some physical problems or financial problems you might have, some health issues, whatever it is. But sooner or later, I am confident that if we really got down to it, and if you were willing to be honest and vulnerable, that some of the deepest pains in your life you could identify as being some relational problem, maybe from your childhood, maybe currently. This is, these are the deep, deepest kind of wounds that we experience because to be human is to live in community and to live in community with other imperfect and sinful people is to be hurt by them and to hurt them as well. And unfortunately, becoming a Christian doesn't magically remove all that. We don't cease to be human in that sense or cease to, we don't become perfect in that sense, but it's part of our experience even in the church. In fact, did you notice in our text all the language he used about hurt and grief? Over and over, Paul talks about pain and grief and tears and distress and anguish and sorrow. This is the Apostle Paul, the author of 13 books of the New Testament, and his experience in his life with other Christians was marked by this kind of pain and grief. And all of us, then, we all learn to deal with this grief and pain in different ways. Some people just learn to escape. Some attack others. Some deny that it really happened. Some internalize it. Some blame shift, some self-justify, some go nuclear, some plot revenge, some people just give up. A part of that has to do with our personality types, our, our family of origin, things that have happened to us. But no matter how we deal with these pains and griefs, we all have them and they do cause destruction in our lives, especially if we don't deal with them. In fact, today, I'd like you to ask you to be honest with yourself for a moment and think about some specific hurt, maybe current, maybe old. Don't be generic about it, but some wound from some other person, if you're honest. What do you do with that? How do you deal with that? Well, this leads to my 
second observation, and again, I'm going to spend the most minutes on this, this is the most important one. They're not all going to be this long, just so you don't have to be scared. But this is, I'm going to spend a few minutes on this because this is really important. This is the second observation. That the mechanism for healing and finding life is forgiveness. Look at verses 7 to 10 again. <clears throat> he says, now instead, instead of destroying this guy who had opposed Paul, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there's anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness means originally this, this intensive, like giving over so that that, so that someone that has wronged you doesn't have to have the consequences of what they've done. It's, it's forgiving in the sense of this intensive sense of like giving, giving away your right to need for that person to be punished for what they've done, either in your heart or in some other way. After Genesis 3, it's hard to imagine a bigger theme in the Bible than this, than that of forgiveness, particularly of God relating to humanity through forgiveness. God reveals himself as forgiving and gracious. And what the Bible constantly says is that God actually forgives our sins. He says we don't have to pay the consequences of them. And that's all throughout the Old and New Testament. And of course, if you've ever read the Bible, this is the whole point of the kind of the apex of the whole story of the Bible, Jesus Christ dying so that we can be actually forgiven. We don't have to pay the penalty. And, I, and we're so used to saying that, that might sound like an old, tired phrase, but I want it to, to sink in in a new way. That God is actually saying, I forgive you, meaning I am not going to hold you to have to pay the consequences for your sin if you are in Christ. But the Bible doesn't stop there. That's like the main theme of the Bible. But that vertical forgiveness that we have between God and humanity then becomes the model for and necessitates a horizontal forgiveness between us. You gotta let that sink in. Those are deeply connected with each other. The way that God relates to us as forgiving becomes what he's calling us to do in relationship to each other. Several weeks ago, Pastor Kevin preached a great sermon on forgiveness when we were in our Formed series. And I'm glad that it's come up again because this is a message we need. He preached from Matthew 18, <clears throat> which is one of the most, I think, haunting places where this is true. This is taught in scripture. You may remember the parable of Matthew 18, where you have this man who's forgiven this huge amount to the king. It's obviously a God figure in that parable. And then he goes to someone who owes him a little bit of money and is unwilling to forgive him. And it is a haunting parable because Every time I think about forgiving someone, I remember how much God has forgiven me and yet still how difficult it is to forgive someone else an infinitely less amount. But it's not the only place that comes up. At the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught in Matthew 16, he says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. Or as Paul says in Colossians chapter three, he says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forget, forgive as the Lord forgave you. That same connection 
between the vertical and the horizontal. You see, forgiving others, letting them actually be free in our hearts and minds from the wrong they've done is the way God relates to us and therefore how he wants us to relate to each other. Because the alternative to that is bitterness, resentment, festering hurt, further harmful actions, unkind words, and ultimately isolation. Can you think of someone or do you know someone who's bitter and completely alone? I guarantee you that that's the end game of the sequences of unforgiveness in relationships. Okay, but here's the problem. And this is why we need to spend a few minutes on this point. Forgiving someone who's wronged you is really, really hard to do. Why? Well, I think in the one sense, it's because God has put in us a sense of justice and that when someone is wronged, we have this sense that is from God that, that this is wrong. And that if we were to just forgive them, then somehow that would be contributing to the wrong. And so we have this sense of justice in us. But I think if we're even look deeper, I think it's so hard to forgive other people who have wronged us because if you look underneath the anger and the hurt, when someone hurts us, they've tapped into either one of our greatest fears or one of our greatest shames. You may not always see that at first because anger will kind of blind you from that. But if you're honest about why you might have trouble forgiving someone, it's because there's some fear that that's touched on or some shame. This week, I <clears throat> reread parts of a book that I've really benefited from in the past. It's by a great Christian philosopher named Nicholas Wolterstorff. And the book is called Justice and Love, and there's more going on in the book that I have time to talk about. But I reread the chapter on forgiveness. And what he said in there, again, I'd read it before, and it, it was so profound. I thought, I just need to share a part of what he says in there that has really helped me to think through the biblical idea of forgiveness. And he has more steps to what I'm going to give you. I'm just going to give you the, the, the first few things he says. He says, actually, to forgive someone there are a few things that have to happen. And I'll just give you the first three. There's a few things that have to happen. And like a lot of philosophers do, they'll like make up a name to you know, give a personal example of this. So he says, okay, let's say you're hurt by a person named Hubert. Now, I don't, I don't know if there's anybody named Hubert here. I'm not calling you out if there is. I think that's a safe enough probably name. So, so how do you forgive Hubert? Well, first, the first step is that Hubert had to have done wrong. Okay, fair enough, right? he did something wrong. Second step to forgive Hubert is that I actually believe and understand Hubert is blamable for what he did wrong, okay? So in other words, if he did it under duress, he was forced to, or did it out of ignorance, then that's not, even though what he did was wrong, it's not something that I need to forgive him for if it was done out of complete ignorance. I may excuse it, and he says, Wolterstorff says, you know, excusing and forgiving may resemble each other, but they're not quite the same thing. To actually forgive someone, you actually have to acknowledge that they did wrong and that they were blamable for doing it. Okay, that makes sense enough. That's not just excusing, but forgiving. But here's the most controversial thing, and I think the most insightful thing he says. The third step that's required to actually forgive someone is that I continue to remember Hubert's deed and condemn it as wrong. 
that I remember that what he did was wrong and I, and I judge it as wrong. Now that's pretty unexpected, but I am convinced that he's right, that that is crucial to the actual process of forgiveness. And let me explain why. To truly forgive someone is not to act or tell yourself like the thing did not happen. To act like it or say that it was or just to say, you know, it wasn't that bad or just to forget it. In fact, we have this notion that I think is really unhelpful to us that forgiving just means forgetting. But friends, forgiving is not the same thing as forgetting. Over time, the feelings of hurt we may have about something done to us, they will fade naturally and that's a gift from God, that's a grace from God. But the actual act of forgiveness is not merely forgetting something, it's not merely overlooking, but forgiving is actually the enacted resolution by the one who's wronged to no longer hold that wrong against them. It's not to say it didn't happen, but to say, I'm not gonna hold on to that wrong and insist on its consequences. Or to use the biblical language that we're about to see in a few weeks in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, to not count our sin against us. Okay, so to forgive is actually to acknowledge something was wrong and to say, I'm not going to hold that against them. Because the wrong deed or the words were still wrong. Forgive someone doesn't mean to act like it's not. In fact, what we found is that this actually doing that short circuits the ability to really forgive someone. Both clinical therapists and research psychologists have found what I think the Bible teaches as well, that for the process of healing to occur, the one who was sinned against must begin by recognizing that what was done was wrong. I was talking to a good friend of mine who's a therapist and psychologist, and he was pointing out that this is one of the one of the greatest problems with people finding healing who have been wounded is that they often won't admit that what was done to them was actually wrong. So maybe for you, it was your mother or father, or something happened to you, maybe in the past or in the future, and you find yourself making excuses for them. Well, they were just people of their generation. That generation didn't, you know, have, weren't as connected to their emotions or, or they were in a really hard situation themselves or whatever it is. Well, that may be, that may be the case. And we all have things that are, certain, that are related to why we do the things we do. But you've got to acknowledge that what was done was still wrong. Because that's how God has made the universe. This act was still wrong. This should not have been done. And until you can do that, you can't actually begin the healing process. You can't actually forgive someone until there is the acknowledgement that what is done was what was done was wrong. Now I know in Christian circles we've kind of conflated forgiveness and forgetting, and you may even think of Hebrews eight twelve, which says that God remembers our sins no more. But you got to think with me carefully about what that's saying. Our English word remember. What that means in the Bible is not remember like God, like forget, he doesn't remember, meaning like he doesn't, oh, you're sinful, I didn't know that. It means not count against. To remember means to recall, to, to remember in the sense of that you're intentionally holding it against us. That's what the Bible means uh, by remember. Just, just think with me about it, that it's not as if now that God relates to humanity, he's like, oh, yo, you guys sinned? I didn't know that. 
the whole point of the beauty of redemption even now, the picture we have of, of what's happening in heaven is that the lamb was slain to give us redemption. God doesn't forget that. That's precisely the beauty of redemption, that God remembers that we rebelled against him, yet his love was greater than that, wasn't the opposite of that, and he does not count those sins against us. He doesn't forget that we're sinful, that is our nature. That is what we've done. He, in the midst of our sinfulness, loves us and does not count that against us. That is redemption. That's the good news. For when the Bible says that he doesn't remember us, it means he does not remember our sins. He doesn't mean that he's clueless. It means he has set his covenant love upon us. And that is the glory of what I have often said, that in many ways, redemption is more beautiful than innocence. Because for all eternity, we will sing of God's grace towards us precisely because we are sinful, and yet he did not count that against us. So too, it's absolutely necessary that we understand that our relationships with other people are the same way. It's a shallow forgiveness. It's not really forgiveness. If you just say, well, it's okay. I don't, I don't wanna think about it anymore. I can't handle that. Or oh, it's a long time ago. Friends, you will never heal and you won't really forgive until there's an acknowledgement that what was done was wrong. That's absolutely crucial. And then by the power of God's spirit in us, forgiveness is the ability to then move toward that person, maybe in small steps, maybe it's a long journey to get there, but to move towards that person towards intentional goodwill on their behalf. That's what forgiveness is. And whenever we talk about these issues, grace or forgiveness from the pulpit, Pastor Kevin and I both are very conscious. I always wanna say this, that we're not talking about this sort of blanket statement of forgiving abuse in this sense. So if you're in an abusive relationship as a child or a spouse or any situation, we want you to know clearly that the call of the Bible to forgive is not, in fact, it's, I think it's what I'm saying about forgiveness here is an important part of this. It's not just saying, oh, it's okay, he or she is stressed out or whatever. It's not okay. And if you're in a situation like that, we want to help you. Now, by the grace of God, maybe even, even in these worst of situations, you can get to a place where there could be some forgiveness, but that we have to start with the recognition that there are rights and wrongs. And in some places, in some situations, it's so wrong that there needs to be help. And so I want you to hear that very clearly. This is not a blanket statement that you just have to put up with being done wrong too. So again, the mechanism for healing and finding life though is forgiveness, as long as we understand that correctly. And I said, that was my longest point. Let me go through the last three much more quickly. The third point then, third observation, is that lack of forgiveness is Satan's scheme. And this was the most shocking thing I learned from studying this text this week. Did you see it in verse 11? He says, in verse 10 and 11, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. In other words, conflict in the church and conflict between Christians, it damages a lot of people. It damages the whole church and many others. And that's what Satan loves. He is a lion prowling about seeking to devour 
And there's nothing Satan hates more than Christians finding forgiveness from God and then giving forgiveness to each other. He is the sower of discord and dissension. As Paul says elsewhere, when he's talking about the deeds of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit, he says in Galatians 5, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. That's the work of Satan, not the work of the spirit. So I just wanted to give you this little thought that the next time you're in a conflict with someone, especially another Christian, and you're teetering on the idea of whether you're willing to step towards forgiveness or whether you're not, remember that you're actually choosing sides there. You're choosing God's side, the way of forgiveness and love and redemption, or you're choosing Satan's side, which is the way of destruction and dissension. Fourth observation, the power then to forgive, the power for forgiveness is love. Did you notice that repeated language of love in Paul's words here in, in chapter two, verse four? He said he wrote out of great anguish because of the depth of his love for the Corinthians, these same people that had hurt him. And in 2.8, it says Paul urges, him, urges the people to reaffirm their love for the one who has done wrong. Friends, this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion and philosophy of life, this fundamental focus on love. When Paul lists what are the fruits of the Holy Spirit, what's the evidence that someone has actually been born again and now is filled with God's own spirit? And they're not just dead. What's the first fruit? Love. When Jesus is asked, what are the first and second greatest commandments? He says they're both love, loving God and then loving your neighbor as yourself. Even in Matthew 5, he's gonna go on to talk about the highest form of love is love for those who hate you, love for your enemies. In the letter right before this, 1 Corinthians 13, this text that we often cross-stitch for a wedding, which is a great thing, but it's so much more than that. It's about life together. It's all about love, not counting wrongs against each other, but forgiving. And on Jesus' last night with his disciples, right before he's betrayed and will be beaten and arrested and beaten and tried and crucified, he says, here's the one marker that everyone for the next 2,000 plus years will know what the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is. The whole world should know that those inside this group of people versus those outside are marked by one thing. And what is it, you know? Their love for one another. Not their super piety, not their super generosity. Those things may be true as well. It's love for one another is the primary mark of what it means to be a Christian. I know many of you here, this is so beautiful, but I know many of you here have been hurt in various relationships, including in the church, maybe even by a pastor, maybe by a staff member, maybe by me, certainly possible, maybe by someone in your community group. This is normal. This happens outside the church. It happens inside the church as well. This is what it means to be human. The difference is that within the church, we have the resources to deal with it. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit to transform us, to actually be honest and vulnerable, 
to be people of love, to offer forgiveness and to receive forgiveness from others. So what do you do if you don't see that in your heart? Well, first you pray. You pray for God to actually fill you with his spirit because the fruit of the spirit is love. You remember the golden rule that Jesus taught that if that you treat other people how you'd wanna be treated, when you've done wrong to somebody, whether you meant it or kind of meant it and didn't fully, how do you wanna be treated in that situation? You want them to be gracious to you. So how about do that? And for me, one of the things I've learned to grow in compassion is that when someone's wronged me, once I get through the anger and the hurt and pay attention to my own stuff going on in there, my, in my best moments, I remember and look at that person with compassion that they too are a person who's been wounded and that they're probably wounding me out of that wound. Maybe in childhood, maybe something going on, but there's, there's a reason why we wound other people. It's because of our own wounds. And so in our best moments, by the gift of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit in us, we can look upon someone who's done wrong to us with compassion. This is how Jesus did. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is God's call upon our lives as well. And so then finally, my fifth observation. So the outcome of this kind of forgiveness is joy. When we pursue and practice forgiveness toward one another, the outcome is joy. Did you notice all the language of joy that Paul had to say? In chapter two, verse three, he says, he doesn't want to be distressed by his brothers and sisters in Christ because they're the ones who are his joy. And he's confident that they can share joy together. Is there anything better in life, really, than pure, free friendship joy with other believers or with just other people even? Free and wholehearted laughter that is not contrived or self-protective or manipulative, but actually comes out of a friendship, whether in marriage or outside of marriage, that is life together in its fullness. I mean, is there anything better? I mean, life is only as good as its relationships, and there's nothing better than that kind of freedom of love in relationships with each other. How do you get that, and how do you sustain that? Only through forgiveness. Because it's only a matter of time till someone, even your best friend, or someone hurts you, maligns you, misrepresents you, or just you know, neglects you, or says something, does something hurtful, intentional or not. The only way to sustain those relationships of joy, the life itself, is through a healthy diet of being a person who forgives others. I've shared with some of you, we're in a really sweet season with our six kids now that are, you know, most all young adults. And now we have three significant others coming around as well, which are great. And so between my wife and I and our six kids and the three significant others, these Penning, we have 11 Penningtons and, and Pennington adjacent people. And, and it's a lot that we're not without opinions and not without... <laughs> words. And uh, so they're, they're, they're a lot. We're, we're a lot to deal with, I'm sure. But it is a very sweet season because there's a lot of grace given and there's a lot of forgiveness. And the only way to sustain that kind of joy times 11 is with a lot of understanding and forgiveness towards each other. That's what God wants for you as well. And that's just a little taste of this life together. So what do we do? 
well, I know you want to flourish and life is only as good as its relationships and these relationships require forgiveness. So this means, friends, not running away. Maybe you're one who just avoids problems and then you just kind of disappear. But it means finding wholeness through doing the hard work of facing your pain and addressing issues and conflicts. Again, from a neurological perspective, this kind of brings a reintegration of your brains and that affects your heart and your soul as well. Maybe some of you this morning, so there's been some situation that keeps coming to mind as I've been speaking. Maybe it's fresh and you're having trouble sleeping. Maybe it's an old and dull throbbing pain. Maybe the person that's come to mind today you would be open to reconciliation. Maybe that's impossible. So you're just called to do your own work because you know forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Right? You can, if someone's unwilling to reconcile, you can't make that happen, but you can still do the work of actually forgiving them in your heart. That's what forgiveness is. Maybe you need to talk honestly with a friend. Maybe you need to talk to a pastor about your situation, but don't run away. Don't hide behind the walls of self-justification because there's no life there. Maybe today on Mother's Day, you've been thinking about your mother. If she's still alive, make sure you call her. And maybe you had an awesome mother Maybe you did not. I think the worship team did a good job of, of uh, reminding us of a lot of pain today, but I also don't want us to forget all the joy of this. Maybe you had a mother who was very forgiving. Maybe you had a mother who was not very forgiving to you. When I think about my own mother with all her problems, I think she really did love me in many ways. She, in great ways, she was a young widow with three kids and uh, I was an absolutely horrible teenager and she really loved me to whatever degree she could. And as I was thinking about that, I ran across this great poem by Wendell Berry, uh, just not, not far away, our own Kentucky pride of Wendell Berry, uh, about mothers and forgiveness that I felt like really resonated with me as a mother and a son. Maybe it would for you as well. But even if this isn't your story, I hope you can see the beauty of this. Let me just read for you briefly this poem by Wendell Berry to my mother. He says, I was your rebellious son. Do you remember? Sometimes I wonder if you do remember so complete has your forgiveness been. So complete has your forgiveness been. I wonder sometimes if it did not precede my wrong and I erred safe found within your love prepared ahead of me the way home or my bed at night so that almost I should forgive you who perhaps foresaw the worst that I might do and forgave before I could act, causing me to smile now looking back to see how paltry was my worst compared to your forgiveness of it already given. And this then is the vision of that heaven of which we have heard where those who love each other have forgiven each other, where for that the leaves are green, the light a music in the air, and all is unentangled, and all is undismayed. Friends, this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has come into the world, that we can have full and free forgiveness from God, and therefore we can live in relationships of freedom and forgiveness towards each other. And the beauty of 2 Corinthians here is not just this sort of idealistic, unrealistic thing. These are messy people in a messy situation, yet by the power of the Spirit, God is at work bringing reconciliation, bringing relationships of forgiveness.
Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.